Welcome to the Boil Down Coffee Club Podcast, the meeting after the meeting, where we talk about our experience living sober. We don't speak for Alcoholics Anonymous. This is only our experience. We have no monopoly on sobriety. If you don't like our approach, that's okay. There's lots of ways to live and lots of ways to live sober. This works for us. I'm Don. And I'm Sam. Sam, you're still here. Well, you keep me in that closet, man. Thanks for throwing some food under the door. I never want to leave the boiled out coffee house. Well, you know, I mean, one of the things for me on, on leaving the bar was like, as long as the windows were blacked out, I didn't have to. <laughs> That's true. You never know what time it is. That's right. We have a guest? Wait a minute. <gasps> woo-hoo, woo-hoo. Woo-hoo, woo-hoo. Was that a delivery owl? You know what? I've got a confession to make. This is our 11th episode, and I realized that that boiled owl wasn't an owl. It was a morning dove. We've got to start over, Don. (laughs) I can't believe you did this. No. I uh, stewed up the dove and (laughs) ate it, and now we've got a boiled owl. But it sounds really alive. Well, it's it's boiled, but it's alive. I oh, okay, okay. Well, you know, this I whole, just boiled it a touch enough to pluck it. So it was a parboil. It's a parboiled. It's a parboiled out. Welcome to the Parboiled Coffee Club. We've got a guest. Yes, we do. <laughs> Hi, Chris. Welcome. Hi, guys. Chris, I'm glad you're here at the Boiled Out. Now, you told us about a website that you found just before that sounds really interesting. Uh, it was a drunk a lot, drunk? The Drunctionary. The Drunctionary. The Drunctionary. And, uh, and we just happen to have one of those handy-dandy little pocket computers here in front of us with a few of those in there. And, you know, some of the fun ones we found, uh, just a quick look, was just a little boop-a-doop. I'm feeling just a little boop-a-doop. What do you think of that one? Juiced to the gills. That's pretty Juiced cool. Is, Juiced is a kind of a regular expression. Knackered. We always liked knackered. <laughs> I've enjoyed being knackered a time or two. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, here we go. Irrigated the ulcers. <laughs> <laughs> I've irrigated the old ulcers again. <laughs> In, oh, incognitibus. That's good. I'm kind of kind of digging that one. That's where uh, you think that you're incognito, but clearly you're just I don't look staggering drunk. drunk. <laughs> I don't look drunk at all. You're, Let's see. In in Tipium Grove, an elaboration of Tipia uh, in Tipsy, noted by Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin has done quite a few of these. Parents. Mm. I wonder if Ben Franklin was an alcoholic. I'm thinking he was one of us. Yeah, he might have been. Because he was a bit of a genius. And a bit of a womanizer. A womanizer. But I prefer more of the genius side of the thing. I I can relate with that big time. And he did. He did did a lot of things. He was an enthusiast. He was absolutely an enthusiast. And uh, Bill Wilson says we are enthusiasts. We know you are, Don. (laughs) Y'all should see the size of Don's microphone here. (laughs) <laughs> now let's not be talking about me microphone 
<laughs> That's a cool thing. The drunctionary.com. I'm going to explore that some more. Thanks, Chris. Thanks. That's good. Doc, I wonder if it's got snot slinging drunk. <laughs> that was that was an expression I used all the time. I don't think you just used it, though. I think you lived it. <laughs> this is a demonstration. <laughs> this is a demonstration of just how boop-a-doop I am. <laughs> well, Chris... Tell us about, just to get started, what was your, the, like the last two weeks of your drinking, what was that like for you? I don't remember. There was a complete blackout. Two weeks blackout. Yeah, yeah. So I was, I, well, like a lot of people in my generation, I um, started drinking at an early age. And I had a tendency to mix things. Um, so I would drink beer and then hard liquor. I would drink beer and smoke weed and drink hard liquor and What's After early age? 12. I was 12 years old wow. when I started drinking. I had an older brother who needed an innocent-looking partner in crime, so I think he recruited me for his cause, and then he could blame me for stuff, and I would get away with it because I was too young to be doing it. So, you know, I was quickly a blackout drunk. I've lost a good two-thirds of my teenage years to blackouts. And so my last couple of weeks, what I remember about my last couple of weeks is waking up from it. Mm -hmm. So in July of 1985, on the 19th exactly of July 1985, apparently I had my last drinking bout ever. And what happened was I, I came to in a bar that I wouldn't go to. It was a dive. It was a biker dive. It was a bar I would never have gone to with a guy I would never have gone there with. And on the table in front of me was was evidence that we had drunk a lot of Boilermakers, which for me was a recipe for blackout drinking. I was stone cold sober and terrified because I didn't remember any of it. Wow. In fact, I didn't remember any of how I got there. I was supposed to be at work. Wow. He was supposed to be at work with me. We were not at work. Now, how old were you then? <laughs> I was 26. 26. Wow. That would that'd be a sobering moment. That was a sobering moment. Yeah. That guy was in AA the next day. Never looked back. How did you hear about AA? Well, yeah, that story. My wife had been, my wife went into treatment six months earlier. Mm -hmm. And I went to her family week, and she'd been in for about three weeks. And they had the, the first thing the therapist did was confront me and say, so what are we going to do about your drinking problem? And I said, problem? I have a problem? And she said, well... From the stories we hear, it sounds like you do, and we have a bed for you if you'd like it. And I said, no, thank you. I'm, I'm perfectly okay. I don't have a problem. And she said, um, well, then you should probably take this test. And I took that little test, right? And I, uh -oh. I got an A+. Plus, you man. aced it, didn't you? I did. I was an alcoholic, uh -huh. according to the test. I got every question right. But I still wasn't convinced, so I decided to do what they said to do, which is okay. Quit for a year on your own and see how that goes. So I quit for a year. And two, and two weeks later, was the year was up because in my head, the math was I can go two weeks. You just <laughs> multiply by 26 and you're there. Dude, right? yes. No big deal. So I'm at lunch and I order a beer. And the next thing I know, I didn't go back to work. Right? I'm like, and so that I did what any good alcoholic would do. I solved my problem by quitting my job. That was the problem I, I really had, right? Because you the couldn't job, get to work. Yeah, the job was getting in what my gets way. In the way. Yeah. I mean, all it does yeah. is provide the money. But That makes total sense to me. You know, I yeah. quit smoking. No, I quit playing tennis 
I was playing tennis in high school, and I quit because it was getting in the way of my smoking yeah. cigarettes. It was like <laughs> perfect logic. <laughs> it was like it was too the, game, the the matches were too long between cigarettes, and I was like, "The one I'm not doing this." Yeah. <laughs> I mean, same thing happened with me going to take some some classes at a, a college nearby. Um, it turned out that it was just you know, cutting into my nighttime drinking. Yeah. And uh, and that was like a 40-minute drive to get there, and my house was five minutes from work. So, uh, you know. It all becomes terribly inconvenient yeah, to do stuff. Right? Yeah. Work is terribly inconvenient. It is. It was. Yes. So. so you had heard about AA from her being in treatment? Well, she was in treatment, and then she was in AA, and she was ignoring me for a while. We were still together. We are still together. She was pretty much ignoring me. And then, so I had this little crisis in the middle of the summer. And she said, I don't know what to do. <laughs> awesome. You're I'm on. Like, You're on your own, This pal. is your problem. And so I walked so She got a little Al-Anon in there, yeah, too. Yeah, 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 right. <laughs> that was, back then, treatment centers actually did a pretty heavy hand with Al-Anon. I don't know if they still do. But what, what, really ha- what happened? What was the problem? Specifically, yeah. Like, what what happened that time when you got drunk where she goes, I can't help you? Well, I couldn't remember anything. <laughs> I was supposed to be quit for a year, and I did at, for six months here. You know, it was from December, January to July. I was quitting mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. Not going to any meetings, but quitting a lot. I kept quitting a lot, and quitting and quitting and quitting. And, you know, the quitting didn't last. Uh-huh. Like the, the the act of quitting happened many times, but the That's good. the act of staying quitting staying quit did not last more than a couple of days. And you so, began to see that, yeah. As... And you know, in lunchtime at work, and then I was unemployed, and I became and I felt unemployable. And finally, I got a job on July first of that year. I got a new job, and I walked into the workplace, and it was one of these. It was a um, a call center for a. Um, financial company, right? And it was a big room and around the edges were um, cubicles, but they were open to the center. Gotcha. And the guy, so I was sitting, and I was sitting here and the guy to my right, about two desks down, was facing, his back was facing me, but in the morning he would open his drawer, pull out a flask, pour it into his coffee, and then that was his start for the day. And he was the most productive person there. He was one of the better service reps there, and he taught me a lot that I know. And he's the guy I went to lunch with. He's a role model. Last. Yeah, he's a role model. He was good. <laughs> I mean, he could do it. Uh-huh. He could maintain doing a good job while drinking at 8 in the morning and mm-hmm. all the way through the day. And he went out to lunch, and he never was falling down drunk. He was never anything other than lit. You know, he was just... I don't know, not quite jug-bitten, you not know? Quite jug-bitten. <laughs> not quite jug-bitten. He was just buzzing. And he, and for him, it was uh, he probably was taking pills, too. Who knows? But it probably gave him that silver tongue. Yeah. And, and the coffee, right? He had right. a silver tongue. He was good at what he did. He solved people's problems without doing much work. So you and, saw him doing that. And yeah, and it looked good to me. That's incredibly attractive. Isn't yeah. It? yeah, but he, wasn't, he was kind of a, um, a rough guy, and I didn't really think I would be a friend of his or hang out with him. And he, he suggested we go to this dive biker bar for lunch. And I'm like, I guess I was like, okay, but I don't remember. I don't remember any of it. I just remember waking up there. So you woke up at the bar. Yeah. What year yeah. was that? That was 85. That was the uh-huh. last, that was July of 85. That was the last time I drank. The very last time I ever drank. So I think it's like all those 
failures of trying to control my drinking that enabled me to to finally accept that I had a problem. I mean, I yeah. I did that at the end of my drinking was uh, was all trying to control it and failing at it. It's the defeat that you need, I think. Yeah, because otherwise, why not drink? I mean, mm -hmm. so it worked for you for a while, right? Drinking was good. Well, when I I don't know, man, because. I started drinking when I was 12. I was in jail for public drunkenness by the time I was 15, oh. more than once. I was in trouble a lot. And then I did a geographic cure and went off to college in Colorado. And there I was able to do really well. I, the one thing I was good at in my life ever was school. For some reason, I was good at that. And so I, I performed very well in school. During those years, I switched to beer and weed keep it light, you know, oh, yeah. no, no hard alcohol, really. Uh -huh. Although I was talking to my wife earlier today and was remembering this time when I, um, some friends, we were drinking beer and some friends of mine suggested we drink Long Island iced teas instead. Oh man. And so I that drank was... like five of those <laughs> after drinking beer and I was hurling, I was puking my guts out for hours. Now, what I said to her was only an alcoholic thinks that the cure for that is to drink again the next day, right? Sure, the, absolutely. The hair of the dog that bit you. So I'm trying it again, and I thought, well, they didn't taste that bad. Um, you know, and those things, because they're a mix of things, again, I was Long drunk. Island iced tea is yeah. an intense drink. It is an intense yes. drink. That destroyed my band. It'll destroy your liver quick. <laughs> well, you know, when I, would, when I would get sick, when I would puke at the bar, or, or actually at home more often than not, um, it would just piss me off because mm -hmm. I just lost all that alcohol, so I had to go get some more in me anyway. That's expensive puke. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I mean, That's how I felt about it. <laughs> My brother and I. I can't say that I that I like. <laughs> Figured out the cost efficiency of my puke. Well, I'm just <laughs> saying that you know I just had three shots of vodka and now it's in the toilet. That's uh, right. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Well, my brother and I got arrested that one that first time. He was we were both public drunkenness, drunken disorderly, all that stuff, and we were too young to be arrested, right? <laughs> so, so they throw us in the in the tank and they call my dad and he comes down and gets us and all that. And after we sober up. I look over at him and he goes, want to get drunk? <laughs> I, said, I said, nah, man, I think we should get high instead. <laughs> so for a couple of days, we just smoked pot, right? And good old-fashioned reefer. Uh, yeah, that's what it's we just did. Eat. It that is. Was, that's yeah. what teenagers are supposed to do, yeah, right? Right. Yeah. right. <laughs> There's a Neil Young song that I always really identified with. And when I got sober, it was like going, what? Because he goes, and I feel felt like getting high oh, yeah. is the line. And being sober, I'm looking back on it. It's like, well, duh. <laughs> I mean, all day long, at any time there was a lull, I felt right. like getting high. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean anything yeah. worth doing was worth doing drunk or high. Doing a lot. <laughs> yeah. So what were you getting from from drinking or and, 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 and smoke? I mean, were you... Yeah, you were having serious problems. So I think when I was 12 years old, I giggled a lot. You know, it was fun. We laughed and we just were goofy, like kids getting dizzy in the front yard. We were right. just doing it with alcohol and weed. 
Um, the first drunk, I, you know, was, I stole cold duck from my parents' Christmas party, and we each drank a bottle of it, my brother. No uh, kidding. That's yeah. the first drink I had. First alcohol I had was cold first... duck from under the kitchen sink. Yeah, the first <laughs> thing I ever drank, and I was like, oh, this is all right, you know. And I think I had fun for the first few couple of years, you know, like a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we did it like that. It was the 70s. Everybody was getting high before school, during school, and after school. All my friend, all our friends did this. We we met up in the woods before school, and it was just the thing to smoke as many joints as we could before school started in a circle, standing in a circle in the woods outside of school, just to focus, just to the get mind. yeah, just to get everything ready. And then at break, <laughs> at break time, we would run out and get beer. And there was a kid who was. Wow. There was a kid with, that hung out with us who was seventeen, but he looked thirty. One of those people that matures oh, yeah. fast, and he could get he could buy a beer anywhere. Um, so we would ride around drinking the beer at ten o'clock in the morning, and then go out to lunch and do it and get high again, and then after school, and then all evening long. This was every day. And you were so, doing well in school doing that. Yeah, you know I'm smart. <laughs> <laughs> Most of us alcoholics are. I'm kidding. It. No, it was. Um, yeah, I mean I was always good at school. Yeah. My brother ditched school all the time. He would have done well in school, too, but he just ditched it. Yeah. I went to class. I went to class high. I knew more than half the kids, in the most of the kids in the class, even high. You know? I was never, at school, I was never so loaded that I couldn't maintain, except one time. which is You weren't blacking out in class. No, no, no. That, was, that was a little later and mostly the evening kind of thing. We went, mm -hmm. you know, we cranked it up in the evening. Well, you're supposed yeah. to, yeah. Yeah. Well, what was it like when you got sober? What happened? Uh, you, you, those those early days were are, are always a hell of a change for us. I mean, yeah. yeah. So, what was there? Was your emotional? Well, I was reaction. I to... was fear, paralysis, like total fear. But what the interesting thing was, um, and I don't even know how I arranged this. I think I have, I do have a bit of the silver tongue. I can talk people into stuff. I'd had this job for three weeks. And we had planned a vacation to Cape Hatteras to the Outer Banks of North Carolina. We were living in Colorado for, for a year. And so three weeks after I started my job and a week after I got sober, <laughs> we went to Cape Hatteras for the beach trip for a week. And they let me have the time off. I can't believe it, right? How did you feel about going to the beach one week sober? It's well, it was interesting because well, the first thing we did was we went to an AA meeting in uh, Duck, North Carolina. Cool. And there were four people there, and four of us invaded their four-person meeting. And the, I'll never forget, we, people, you know, I wasn't talking yet, but other people were. And there was a great sharing, and it was, it was you know, it was starting to, like, m make me th think about things. And I was determined to stay sober. And <laughs> this guy, who was older than God, I think, and probably had never left the Outer Banks, that's what he looked like. He had that skin and that mm -hmm. face, you know. Mm -hmm. And he should, he stands up in the meeting and he says, well, I got a four-word spiritual program. In the morning, I get up and I say, help me. And at night, I go to bed and say, thank you. And in between, I read the big book and I stay sober. Wow, that's attractive as hell. That's encouraging. I actually never, that's the one share I've never forgotten. Yeah. I hear you. It came through, man. I was like, Yeah. It worked, and you know what? That's actually how I first started praying because I didn't really want to do the praying thing. You but took, help, you help took me. him. Well, do you think he, his, uh, what he said, was an effect on how you prayed? 
<laughs> I did it literally, man. I woke up in the morning and said, help me, God. <laughs> uh-huh. I mean, I, for weeks I did this. Like, that's what I did. But then when we got back, I started doing the... So they said do 90 meetings in 90 days. I think I did 163 in, in 57 mm. That's days. a very specific number. Yeah. I don't think it's I think I did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in, in like 57 days. Because I was in Denver and you could go to a meeting at 7 in the morning. You could actually go to a meeting at 6 in the morning at the time. Cool. Mm-hmm. 7 in the morning, 8 in the morning, noon, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, Love 11 it. o'clock at night. You could go to as many meetings as you wanted to if you had a car, and that's what I did. I went to three, four, five meetings a day sometimes. That's fantastic. You know, because it was the one place, because what I felt in that, even with that, you know, that salty old timer saying that one thing, um, you know, I felt something in the room that I had never felt anywhere else, in the AA room. I felt this thing that Uh I had never felt anywhere else. And I didn't know what it was until someone named it serenity, like a, a sense of calm, like a, some sense that like, I'll be okay in here. I'm safe right now. Everything's cool. Something's going on Yeah, here. there's something happening here. I don't know what it is. The first AA meeting I went to actually after I got sober, two guys almost got in a fight. And I thought, well, this is weird, but it's kind of like the bar I used to go to. Mm-hmm. You know, they stood up and they were standing up and posturing it's still the same people. Yeah. They're just not drunk. Yeah. Usually, these were. I learned later these two guys were barely not drunk, kind okay. of like me, but <laughs> you know, just barely not drunk. Kind of still coming off it, right? But wow. Um, but yeah. So there was some ineffable thing that was happening at the meeting that you were feeling that was attractive mm-hmm. of of serenity. You identified as serenity later. You know, I think mm-hmm. I didn't know a name for it, but I knew I wasn't terrified. And I was terrified out there and I was going to work, but I was having a hard time. So I found a noon meeting that I could get to from my job very easily. And I actually went to that noon meeting five days a week for 16 years every Mm day um, because it was just, it was called Happy Trudgers. I love the name of it. And some of I've been back, I've been back after moving away 16 years ago, several times. And some of the same people still go there. It's right in downtown Denver. And it's it's a lunchtime meeting, and they mean business. They get it done. So very cool. Yeah, yeah. that's cool. Yeah, I I didn't go to a treatment center when I got sober either, and just came into the rooms and and did much the same thing. Just went to meetings a lot. There weren't that many meetings uh, here at that time, and I remember a Sunday was particularly long. The 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 only meeting at that time on a Sunday was at eight o'clock. And that was the longest day of the year, waiting for that 8 o'clock meeting, particularly in my first month. Yeah. I was lucky because one of my early home groups was a 9 in the morning, Sunday morning meeting. But I went to that one for about, I went to that one every Sunday for that 16 years, too. So, yeah. um, Yeah, I mean, it was just, I I could make it through. There was, it was good for me to be in a place like, a big city like that where there were six yeah. or seven hundred meetings a week because you could find them. And it's safe. I felt safe yeah. in the meeting. Yeah. I remember pulling into the, uh, the clubhouse here when I was first getting started. And, you know, I would be in my car on the street. And as soon as I got my car into the parking lot, it was like my shoulders dropped from around my ears. It's like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm yeah, here. yeah, absolutely. And that still can be very true today. Yeah. You shared that old-timer 
harshly speaking, but that's what you remember. That that happened to me one time. I've been sober a couple of years, and my brother-in-law and his wife died in an airplane crash in uh, Everglades, value jet crash. And I'd been sober for two years, but this was devastating. And I talked to my sponsor and he said, it was a noon meeting and it was a discussion meeting and that I was going to. And he said, be sure to bring up what's happened to you. And I was going, I don't know, this is too awful to talk about. I don't want to bring the meeting down. And he said, no, no, you need to, you need to bring this up and talk about it. So discussion meeting, they asked for a topic and I was like, well, okay, well this, my uh, brother-in-law and his wife died in this plane crash. Everybody knew about it. It was all over the news. And so, of course, the room was silent. You know, no, nobody knew what to say. And this old-timer, Richard G., he said, I was just sitting here thinking what a self-centered, nasty, ugly drunk you'd have if you were to get drunk right now. And then he got up and got some coffee. And, <laughs> oh. <clears throat> and I was Googling, and I was like going, damn. Took you a minute to get over the steam. That's that harsh. Slap, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's the only thing I remember from that meeting. And he was, he was exactly right. I would have been of no use to anyone mm -hmm. if I had gotten drunk. And it wouldn't have helped right. for me to get drunk. So he spoke the truth, and it was really harsh. And, you know, I don't know that I would say something quite that way, but it was the truth. It got through to me. I've had a couple of times or something like that. Somebody said something that could be harsh, but that's what I remember. Yeah, I'm not a fan of harsh, but I think it's, yeah. sometimes it can work. It's a, I, don't use, I don't do it myself, but mm. my first sponsor, he was not harsh, but he would say things that felt harsh. Like, yeah. You know, man, your drug of choice isn't alcohol. It's not. A, it's not marijuana. It's self pity. <laughs> and I was like, uh, I'm not sure how to take that. <laughs> and he said, Take it how I meant it. You can wallow in that stuff all you want, or you could write a gratitude list instead. And then he hung up the phone. Now I've heard <laughs> you share about him yeah. a lot. And you always say, and then he hung up the phone. Did he, are you being, are you, is that a metaphor or did he literally no, no, hang he up the phone? No, he the phone down because he was trying to get me to do stuff I wasn't doing. So he hung up the phone he on you. That's harsh. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> but he was a young guy. He was like five years sober. He was a few years older than, he was like five years older than me. And we're still in touch. We're still friends. He, um, but he was just, he had grown up in a family. His father was an old timer. In AA, and he had learned the hard way about his own alcoholism, and uh, and came in young, and he knew, and he knew at the time. I think a lot of the old timers were kind of harsh. They were like the the strict, you know, mm -hmm. letter of the law kind of alcoholics in recovery, and and he, different um, cities are different. Yeah, and he he just you know he knew that if I didn't, if he let me whine for too long, I would just keep whining. He was right. Mm -hmm. I could want I could whine for days and not write my fourth step, or I could sit down and write my fourth step. Well, he would listen to me for a while, very patiently, and then he would say, "Have you written today?" And I would say, "No." And he said, "Oh, write some fourth step." 
click. click. <laughs> and he would want. He knew. He he knew that I knew he want. He wanted me to call him back and tell him that I had done that. Excellent. So I was being accountable, right? And uh -huh. so I would write a page of four step, and I'd call him back, and he'd say, "You wrote a page, huh? Great. How about another one? Click." <laughs> Because he knew that he would have to drag me kicking and screaming through these hard steps, and he did, and it was and it worked. It worked for me, so we had a, you know we had a great rapport, but some of it seemed kind of harsh. But I was also easily wounded, which is one of the things I was getting out of drinking was getting away from being easily wounded. Right when I was drunk, I was not easily wounded because mm -hmm. I don't I didn't have any invulnerable. Yeah, I was just yeah I was the guy. I, mean, I didn't know what I was doing anyway, so. And I didn't remember much of it. So. so you're easily wounded, but it seems like... So why didn't you get a resentment over him hanging up the phone? Oh, he's on, on my fourth step. Oh, good. Still, okay. he was. He was. That one. He was on that one. When I read it to him, he laughed. Good. But he, you know, he knew he would be, and he was trying to... He was trying to get me to see the ridiculousness of that, right? Like, why are we getting resentments over things like that? People telling us the truth about ourselves. Yeah, well, my sponsor told me one time, and when I was doing the fifth step, and I had him on the on the resentment list because because he called they, you a thief. because because he called because <laughs> he called me out on stuff yeah, yeah, exactly. uh, because he was honest, right? Uh, he didn't beat a, around the bush, you know, like a the time idea, right? the time that he said I used to steal paint. Because I'm an artist, and so I'd steal artist colors because I couldn't afford it, and I was an artist, and I deserved it because I'm an artist. So I shoplifted paint all the time on a regular basis, and uh, it was on my my list. And he said, "So you're a thief," and I was like, well, "That's not the word I would use exactly <laughs> for, for that." But it was like blunt, and that that stuck with me uh -huh. because. <laughs> In truth, if you take things from people that don't belong to you, you're a thief. <laughs> That's a definition. That but might even artistic, be in the drunctionary. <laughs> but an artistic thief. <laughs> so I, I had him on my list, and he said that if your sponsor's not on your on your fifth step, then you, you need to get another sponsor. <laughs> there you go. I agree, I agree. I don't think I've ever had a sponsee that I haven't had to, at some point, threaten them to finish the fourth step. Yeah. It's hard to do. For some reason, for me, when I came in, I had been in therapy a whole lot mm -hmm. and gotten a lot out of it. I learned all about myself, but it didn't touch alcoholism. But I saw the value in looking at my own behavior and ex and self-examination. And so it was not hard for me to write the fourth step. It, I found it quite easy to do. I was really looking forward to it. In fact, I kept saying, let's go ahead and do the fourth step. Well, you know, that's one of the things I hear about uh, four steps and alcoholics is like, I, I don't know why it's such a block for us because we really do like talking about ourselves. Well, I mean, it's, it's true, such a self-centered yeah. act to sit there and write down all these things that all these people were pissed off at, why we're pissed yeah. off at them. So I don't understand the block other than the fact that in the rooms, we scare people about the fourth step. We make it sound like it's such a bad, scary thing to do. This is a tough, mm -hmm. oh, you're on that. And yeah, there might be something to that, Sam. Yeah, I think some people do. I kind of try to tell people, hey, 
This is freedom. This step is freedom. Yes. This step is the is the doorway to true freedom. You'll get rid of the burden. It won't be spinning around in your head, which is just a bad place to be. It'll be down on paper. You'll be able to give it away. Then you'll be able to burn it and move to the next thing. And uh, my sponsor had me burn mine. I burned it in a charcoal grill in my backyard. It was the best moment mm-hmm. ever. I <laughs> like to do that, just to let it fly, you know. Did you have another copy of it? No. Yeah, get the, get that eight-step list off of it before you burn it. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> no, no, I made the list and pulled it out. I mean, but, okay. but, you know, here's the thing. The eight-step list consisted of everybody I still knew, that I ever knew, right, that I remember. It was everyone. It was everyone, you know. So, and what I could tell you the list now, and that was 32 years ago. I could tell you the list of people now well, that, right. that were on that list. They're, you know, they were burned into my brain. Because my brain wants to go, hey, man, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. That's the problem. That's the dark part, I think, in the fourth step is I see the pattern in myself, and it's not a good one. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a painfully poisonous one. My, I spent my whole early life drinking poison, wishing other people would die from it. Mm-hmm. That's my thing. So when you did your fourth step, um, how long did it take? Did you sit down and do it all at once or months? I mean, that's why he was, I'm a writer. That's, I do, that's, I've been a writer since I was a little kid. I write a lot. So you were so verbose. I was a verbose. Yeah. You can think of this as the Leo Tolstoy of fourth steps, right? War and peace, but no peace. It was just war. Right. And it was, I filled three spiral notebooks dude, uh, on resentments. And some of them were the same person like 30 times. I'm telling you, my mother-in-law was on at least 15 pages. My dad was on at least 20. I was still, I was so, I was still pissed after I was writing. He's like, okay, write another page. Write what are you doing? Page. Getting different aspects of it or just venting? I don't know. I think some of it was repetitive. It was very repetitive. That's why he fell asleep during my fifth step. It was all the same. Right. But, you know, it's all, and, and actually, I like I've, this guy. I've listened to more fifth steps than I've done, and every time, it, it really, the story doesn't change very much. It's just how much people are willing to give, you know? Mm-hmm. So mine was long, it was absurd, it was repetitive, it was like somebody built a resentment factory and they had OCD. That's my, that's how mine was, was you know? So they, you know, it was not getting, it, well, I don't really think it was getting new aspects. It was just, I have to repeat this because I have to, you know, and I have to and then he did really it again. get it I out. It again. I have to really get it out on yeah. this guy, you know? And so it was long, but most of that time that it took me was not doing it. It was procrastinating. Oh, yeah. That was my experience. Right. My I'm a professional procrastinator. I'm not an amateur. I'm good at procrastinating. Like mm-hmm. We should get that added to the Drunctionary. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I'm really so, good at it. One of the things that I did, I found this in myself when I did that first big fourth step, was um, that it sent me to dark places. Mm-hmm. And so when I would work on it, um, I would go to a coffee shop and and do it uh, for an hour or so, and then I would go to a meeting because I knew That's going weird. to a meeting would help me get out of the dark place. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have any experiences with uh, with it dredging up shit and making you feel like crap and? Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the reasons I've been, uh, in addition to being in recovery, I've been in therapy for most of the time. I had a fucked up childhood, man, all I can say. And not everybody in my household was really great. I was raised by wolves. And, you know, mm-hmm. the, so 
my mom was the only nice person I knew, you know, <laughs> like everybody else was just after you, you know. So, and it wasn't just my house, it was my neighborhood, the whole, the whole experience. So I had, I guess, and I, being hypersensitive, I had a lot of trauma. So I, yeah, it was, I was always in a dark place. That's one of the reasons he kept on me to keep going, because he knew that the only way out of the dark place is not to stay in it. Absolutely. So keep going, keep going, write another page, write another stop. page, write another page. So what was the fifth step like? Was it for you, was there uh, some relief in doing the fifth step right away, or was that something that took time? Actually, this was the best thing. I, you know, I was just in a meeting on Friday night that was about the fifth step, and I shared this, and then yesterday morning in a meeting sharing about a little bit about the fifth step. For me, it was instant relief. I, I walked out of that room weighing 100 pounds less. My, my soul weighed 100 pounds less. Um, than it did before. The weight was lifted. It didn't stay completely lifted. I needed to do the remaining steps through the amends and beyond for it to stay lifted. But that moment when I walked out of that fifth step, which by the way was a 12-hour day, and he, wow. was, he did fall asleep, and I looked over at him and thought, that's about right. Like That, <laughs> that fits what's going on here because I'm bored. Like, I want to fall asleep. This is so... You know, the funny thing about the fourth and fifth step is everybody thinks they did something dramatically different than everybody else. They, everybody always thinks they have this deep, dark secret. The first one I heard, this kid was so terrified to tell me the one really bad thing he did. Right. And when he told me, I was, I, I, it was hard not to laugh <laughs> because it was nowhere near the worst thing I had ever done or many people I had known by then had done and had said openly in a meeting, you know, like... So, um, but that's what's so beautiful about it. Is, step. It is beautiful, and he unleashed that. He unle he let go of that burden, and he didn't have to carry it anymore. And that's how I felt. I felt like I don't have to carry this stuff anymore. Yeah. There's still more work to do, but I don't have to carry all this. And I haven't resented James from junior high since he was on, since that fifth step. I, I haven't thought about him. I think <laughs> that the uh, yeah. you know the expression that uh, that will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it what it yeah. what it really means or where it's applicable is in listening to fifth steps i have had the experience of somebody trembling sharing something that's so horrible for them that they did and it's happened numerous times and i've been able to go i did that too our greatest liabilities too. become our greatest assets. Yeah, and, and then that person is healed from that. That and what a what a thing that is. Yeah. And then at that point, I can go. Well, this experience that I've had, I don't want to shut the door on it because yeah. I can help other people with it. I can't remember whether it was the Friday meeting or the Saturday meeting where someone said, "I never." felt that connected to another human being before that in that way where I had shared the kind of thing that I had kept inside me my whole life to it with another human being who wasn't going to judge me for it and that I think is like that's the gift that sends shivers up my spine about mm -hmm. this process I got them right now yeah, yeah. and you know it, it, it the thing that happened for me again on that particularly on that first big one was that that shedding of, of 100 pounds, I think, is, is how you, you put it at one point. Um, you know, I also had this desire not to put that back on. Yeah. 
So, you know, here I finally got, you know, yes, I've still got work to do. Yes, there's still shit to clean up. But I just got a whole lot of shit off my back. Right. And I am now in a place where I know I don't want to put that kind of crap back on me. Right. And that gave me an incentive, a motivation to continue doing this too. Because I knew that if I didn't continue doing this program, if I started drinking again, drugging and all that shit, I was going to feel like that again. Mm -hmm. I surely didn't want that. And the beauty of this program is that they knew what alcoholics were like. So they knew that we would almost all experience what you just described, but they also knew that we could slip back. So they built a 10th step in to catch us along the way, right? We would slip back into that way of thinking. 10th step us. is what it. Oh, <laughs> continue to take personal inventory. And when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we're in school now. I have no idea just what you were asking Quiz. me. I know what the 10th step is. I just didn't know what question you were asking me. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I think um, it, it's a built-in check and balance system, right? Keeps us honest. Keeps us from falling back into that way of thinking and acting. It's a beautiful thing. I, I've never seen anything more beautiful than people being sober and living this way and really getting the most out of it. Or, it's a big deal. Or anything more torturous than people who can't quite get it. It's painful. Especially those uh, who have come around and decided, and, and, and I believe it is a choice, have decided that this is not going to work for them. Um, and so they don't try it. They don't really put in the work. Um, you know, one of the other things for me on the fifth set, uh, side of stuff is um, having listened to quite a few of them. Um, you know, I, I've heard, again, that fear thing that gets put out in some of the, uh, the, the meetings and such of, you know, what if somebody gets a hold of your fourth step? What if somebody talks about your fifth step and all that crap? Um, I do not remember the fifth steps that I've heard. Yeah. I, it, it just it doesn't stick. And I think that that's a gift of this, you know, because I'm sure there's some juicy tidbits in there, but it doesn't stick with me. It, uh, that's, it, right. that's true. I, I was just thinking back. I remember what I shared. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Totally. Because we're totally self-centered. <laughs> My shit was the best. <laughs> no, and I remember the worst. <laughs> what I shared with the person giving me the oh, fifth step. Oh, okay. I remember oh, right. the parts of my story that connected with his story. Gotcha. And I can remember that. Yeah, right. And I can remember the experience of sharing it and, and the relief, but I don't really remember what they said. Well, that first fifth step I heard that I just talked about where the guy had the deep, dark secret, I couldn't for the life of you tell me what he said. <laughs> yeah. Now, I have no idea. I could tell you what I said, which was, it's going to be okay. Yeah. You know? And you mm -hmm. don't have to do that again. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I and a whole lot of other people done very similar if not exactly similar exactly the same things so once we find out we're not as unique as we think we are right. it really helps <laughs> that's another reason nobody remembers it because it is very repetitive <laughs> it's right? true. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah we're uh, all just a bunch of common drunks like, <laughs> let's see you're resentful you're afraid you're jealous you're insecure not about you know it's you know you oh, and make, you're a thief. Yeah. <laughs> and you really like self-pity a lot. It's good stuff. Well, this is great. Thanks, uh, Chris, and stick around. Look out.
There's a boiled owl flying around. <laughs> that thing barely, barely missed me, man. <laughs> it's, it's time for our old-timers question from a listener. Who are you calling an old-timer? I'm calling you an old-timer, and Chris is too, by the way. That's right. No matter how long you've been sober, it's still one day at a time, but that's what happens if you stay sober long enough. Uh, you can post a question to us on our website or uh, email us, giveahoot at boiledowlaa.org. We don't have any questions yet, so we're making them up. And Fern from Red Brick, Oakland. Uh, <laughs> Red Brick? Um, you know, I'm just looking around the room at this point. <laughs> says, um, is AA religious? I keep hearing certainly so much uh, talk about God at the meetings. Good question, Fern, from uh, Red Brick. From Red Brick. AA is not religious in that there's not a dogma that you have to sign on to. I think that's what it is. It, it, in AA, it, we do talk about God. One of the, my the most unusual experiences I had going to an AA meeting at the early on. I went to a meeting there was. All these people standing around outside with red cups, drinking out of a look like a keg party. Mm -hmm. They're all laughing, cussing, and talking about God. And it's like, this doesn't make any sense. It's <laughs> like cussing and talking about God. What? But it's the the idea of what God is is, a, is personal in AA instead of, I think, the difference in a religion is you're kind of, at least I was told, what God was and what I needed to believe about it. In AA, it's my experience that AA has just said there is a God, you're not it, and surrender and ask for help. And then AA knows that you'll have the experience at some point of something greater than myself is going to help me. And it happened to me. And that thing that helps me to stay sober and that thing that is a support for me in times of trouble that I pray to, I get help and I'm able to live better. I'm able to not drink and I'm able to be a better person. And whatever that is, that thing is now what I call God. It's perfectly okay to not call it God perfectly okay to call it higher power, perfectly okay to call it the spirit of the meeting, perfectly okay to call it Howard. Howard, be thy name. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, it, it really doesn't matter. I, God doesn't care. So AA, it's a, there's a lot of people who are wounded I think in this area by Christianity and they've had bad experiences with Christianity. They felt judged. They felt shamed. And that's not a part of the spirituality of AA. It's different than that. Yeah. I, you know, I had a problem with this when I got sober cause I was, I grew up in a household of forced religion. My dad was a preacher. So I had to go to church three times a week and I had to learn, all the stuff that they had a thing called confirmation, which is similar to the Catholic catechism. This is the Episcopal church. 
And they, you know, I had to memorize that stuff early in life, and I had all that stuff memorized. I had all the dogma, all the beliefs, all the creeds, all that stuff in my head. I knew what none of it meant. I had no idea what they were talking about, but I could, I could recite it. I have a very good memory, and I could recite all that stuff from rote. But I looked around me at those gatherings and saw people that seemed hypocritical and judgmental and not very nice. They were into gossip and backstabbing and all kinds of things that I knew as a little kid wasn't okay. And so I was not impressed. And when I got to AA and I saw, you know, what happened to me in my first meeting, this is another harsh guy, but my first meeting, this guy comes running up to me after the meeting and he says, what makes you think you're an alcoholic? What? <laughs> I've babbled something about not drink, not being able to not drink. And he said, okay, then good. And he goes, so look at our steps. He goes, the only word you need to know right now is we. The first word of the first step. Just know this. We all do this together. That's all this is. It's doing this together. We stay sober together. If you stick with we, you'll be okay. And he gave me his phone number. And to me, that was like the first experience I had had of actually prayer in action was calling someone. Um, I didn't, I let, I was terrified to call someone and say I felt, I felt unstable and weak Mm -hmm. and expose myself and be vulnerable. And what I got was something I had never gotten from anybody else when I did that. I got deep support and love from somebody I had never met before. In, in, from AA, and I thought that's the if that's religious, I can dig it, you know. If that's what if that's what it is, I'm great with it. But that's not what it's not religious. It's I call it the force, by the way, because I have baggage about God. But um, and <laughs> the I like, force works. The force is great. But I just really my experience of the of this aspect or this core of recovery, the spiritual is letting go and and doing you know doing things like praying when i don't want to and and calling people when i don't want to and if those are religious acts then i'm all for it because they've saved my life many times so i you know and somewhere along the line i let go of my baggage about religion i really don't care if people are religious or not in aa or outside of aa and nobody in aa has ever tried to tell me what to think what to believe or how to feel about it all so to me, that was a, that's a definite advantage over some of the things I've heard from the wounded Christians and mm-hmm. people like that, you know, because they get force fed like I did and it's painful. But, you know, this is sort of what's going to work for you. I told a sponsee recently, by the way, who has a real, I thought I had a problem with God. This guy had a real problem with God, deep seated anger stuff. I said, what makes you think it has to be God, man? In your case? The only thing I can think of that's going to save your ass is Alcoholics Anonymous and the program. But you're going to have to work it or you're not going to make it. And it's still a matter of of surrendering to that. Right. So I'm like, make that your higher power. Make the program your higher power if that's what you got to do. And it will work. Absolutely. Choose your own conception of God. It can be the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, And it can be no God. I mean, that, that's in there, too. Yeah, uh, right. and there are plenty of atheists out there who, who are sober today and happy. But the fact, I think, that comes into play is something that happened for me early on when I, when I heard you, Don, when I first came in here. Mm-hmm. You, were at, you were doing a speaker meeting, and, and I got to that place hearing what you said where 
I was able to not fight it. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to make it mean something. I could just right. let it be. Whatever you think it means doesn't matter to me. Right. And that was not where I was. When I came into these rooms and, you know, I, I was very judgmental of religious people such that when I came in here, I was so self-conscious, imagine an alcoholic being self-conscious, I was so self-conscious of you thinking that I was religious whenever I would pray or do any of this. You were concerned with what people were thinking yes! about Yes, yes. I was like, too. oh, he's one of those religious people now. Yeah. And, me you too. know, that just totally didn't work for me. <laughs> you know what blew, blew that out of the water for me? The, the whole caring what other people thought? The first time I went to that lunchtime meeting I described earlier, uh -huh. The first person I saw in the room was a guy from work oh, who cool. I did not know was in recovery. And I was like, oh, crap. And then I went, <laughs> oh, wait a minute. We're here for the same reason. There you go. There we go. I'm all right now. I was afraid <laughs> of being exposed or what? He, what would he, what's he going to think of me? And then I thought, wait a minute. He's an alcoholic. What is he going to think of me? He, go, he comes up to me later and goes, you were afraid, right? I got, when he saw me, right? I go, yeah, I kind of was. He goes, not to worry. Your secret's safe with me. <laughs> <laughs> now let's go out for coffee for lunch. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Well, that answers it. I think that's I pretty think, good. Yeah. I think we got this uh, religion thing figured out here. Well, I'm glad, actually, we didn't have to. That's the whole point. <laughs> you, know, you know, I, I, I spoke with, I went to talk to a Unitarian Uni Universalist minister when I was First came to AA, and I had about three days of running around just totally freaking out, going, I'm not going to be able to do this AA thing because it's got God in it. Mm -hmm. I talked to her, and she said, well, I found when people tell me that they don't believe in God, I can ask them, what, tell me what this God is that you don't believe in. And invariably, when they tell me, I can say, I wouldn't be able to believe in that God either. <laughs> I've heard that, yeah. Uh, I've heard that. <laughs> you know, and one cool thing that I got out of this too, being able to be okay with God and, and yeah. using the word God, right. is my, uh, my Southern Baptist grandmother and I, several years ago, sat down and we had a conversation about God. And she was coming from her religious background and I was coming from my experiences in, in spirituality and AA. And the thing was that we didn't have to explain it to each other mm -hmm. because what the way she was applying her religion to God mm -hmm. and the way that I was talking about my experience of God, we were still talking about the same thing. Mm -hmm. And we both got that. Neither one of us was wrong. And right. that was cool. I've had this conversation with my mom because she's known me all my life and she's been a good Christian woman all her life and her Christianity is basically boils down to this help other people who need it and Excellent. by God that's actually what AA boils down to that's what it boils yeah. down to help other people that need it that's it yeah. Chris thanks for joining us thanks absolutely thanks, thanks for having so much Mama's got a squeeze box. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for 
joining us. The Boiled Owl podcast is posted on the 1st and 15th of every month. Visit our website at boiledowlaa.org. Leave feedback or ask us a question via email at giveahoot at boiledowlaa.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous and your city or visit aa.org. Please note Boiled Owl AA is produced by members of AA and only expresses our experience and opinions. It is not endorsed by AA World Services. What are some other ones on there? Uh, jambled. Jug bitten. From the figurative sense of the liquid contents of a jug. British early 1600s to the mid 1700s. And next is jug steamed. US mid 1800s. I like that. Jug bitten. Jug bitten. That's good. Jolly well jug bitten. Uh, um, uh, uh, well, um, 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 well, um, uh, um, and, uh, uh, really, um, and, um, well, um, 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 I, uh, uh, um, well, um, I, um, and, um, and, um, 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 and, um, they, well, um, I, but I, um, 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 well, um, I, and, uh, um, 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 and, um, well, um, I, um, 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 uh, um, really, um, but I, um, um, jug bitten. 